The answer used to be, I want to be a professional footballer, or ballet dancer, or train driver, or tram driver, or, or teacher. Now the number one answer to that question, what do you want to be when you grow up, the number one answer now is, I want to be a social influencer. Now, I can already see that for some of you here, you're going, what on earth is a social influencer? But basically, it boils down to living a glamorous lifestyle in exotic locations and promoting various products to those who follow you on social media platforms, such as Instagram and TikTok and YouTube and the like. Still not any clearer, is it? Um, but... Let me give you an example. For example, one of the top social influencers is, well, the number one rated is, is Cristiano Ronaldo, the footballer. So he does something else with his time. Um, but for one single tweet, uh, he will be paid hundreds of thousands of pounds. For the advertising industry, it's worked out that we're actually more interested in celebrities than we are in brands. So the advertisers are trying to connect the two. And these social influencers uh, want to make sure that along with the promoted product uh, that they have carefully positioned, their millions of followers will also see them in the best light possible. They very carefully pose for their spontaneous pictures and if necessary they will photoshop away any defects or get someone else to do it for them and a whole generation of young people are growing up with the idea that this unreachable perfection should be their goal little wonder that suicide rates among young men are rapidly rising and that eating disorders among young women have become commonplace. And in one sense, in one sense, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah that we've been studying over these past five Sunday mornings is a bit like a social media post. It is advertising, it is promoting what God's kingdom really is as it's worked out by real people. You see, how do God's people live? What does it look like? And is it any good? Would I want to be part of it? And what we discover as we've been looking at Ezra Nehemiah, in, by and large, at its best, God's community is a truly glorious and it's worthwhile joining. But the writer in this book doesn't Photoshop any of the details. He keeps it real. He describes it as it is, and that includes failures and mistakes and overly confident expectations. And we see this in chapters 3 and 5 of Nehemiah. Now, if you've got a physical Bible with you, that's great, have it opened, or if you have it on uh, one of your devices, 
then that will be good. Try not to look at the social media influences while you've got your device out. Rather try and look at the Bible. It will do you a heck of a, a lot more good because what you do have in the Bible, particularly here in chapters 3 and 5, are descriptions of the community, God's people, in action. Now, some is good, some is bad. And you may well be wondering, having heard Ashley read chapter 3 to us, why on earth that particular list is here. If you're a visitor with us, and by the way, it's great if you are welcome, lovely to see you, but you maybe came in and you are really hoping that we've got some sort of relevant church gathering and you hear a Bible reading and you're going, what on earth is this all about? All these names. It's just a description really of who built what where. But the point is, it is here. It's in the Bible. And every part of the Bible is profitable in one way or another. And in looking at it, we discover great illustrations of what, of what God's community in action looks like. Really, it, it, it's an Instagram. Now, before we get into the passage, let's remind ourselves of how these chapters, 3, 4, 5, fit into the overall structure of the book we've been looking at. Well, it's all about a small remnant of the Jewish nation returning from their exile in Babylonia, where they had settled down for over 70 years, two or three generations worth. And they uproot themselves. They travel about a thousand miles across the Arabian, uh, round the Arabian desert to return to their ancestral lands after that thousand miles. And then they begin to re-establish themselves, both religiously and economically. This involved a group under a guy called Zerubbabel. They returned. They were the first guys to return uh, to rebuild the temple at Jerusalem around about the year 535 B.C. Then about 60 years later, there is a group that returns under the leadership of a chap called Ezra. And, and their task, really, Ezra's task, is to reestablish God's law amongst his people. And then Nehemiah comes about 13 years later because he's been appointed as governor. And he comes to repair the walls of the depopulated city of Jerusalem. And it's this latter section where we find ourselves in chapter 3. And as we've said, it's a description of who repaired what where. Now, it lists the ten major gates into the walled city. Now, here on screen we can see it, and hopefully for you folks, uh, live stream. There you go. There is the picture of the city of Jerusalem. And what you have is a description in chapter 3 of how it, it, the gates, the ten gates are rebuilt, and the sections of wall in between. Now, they start at the sheep gate. Dave, could we put it back on screen for the live streamers. Um, now, to fit in to, to, to the image, um, it's um, the north is to your left as you look at it. it it's not a, a, a north-south access here, it's an east-west access. The north is to your left, so the northeast corner you see the sheep's gate. That's where the sheep were brought in, that's near the temple, that's where they came in uh, for the sacrifices. And then the writer works counterclockwise listing the various gates 
and those who worked on the intervening sections of wall. Okay, thanks, Dave. We can, I think, take that off. Now, when you come to a passage like this, preachers can fall into the great temptation of making more of these descriptions than they should. Preachers have a tendency to see richly symbolic allegories, and they will suggest meaning for every door and bar and bolt and nail. But actually, that's not what this passage is about. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. In other words, we need to pull back from the telephoto lens. That can be the tendency of some where we go in with telephoto lens and you're seeing all these details really close up. That's not what we want to do here. Instead, we want to use the wide-angled lens. We want to draw back out and see the bigger picture and understand why the author has included it here. And I want to suggest that bigger truths are illustrated here, which help us understand how God's people lived then. In fact, we'll see how it's how they lived after the giving of the Holy Spirit, after Jesus came, the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost, and that's what our New Testament is made up of. And also, we'll see it's how we should live now. It's an illustration of truths about how God's people live today. So unlike Nehemiah, we actually won't be visiting every gate and section of the wall, but rather we'll be visiting the truths that are illustrated here. I first of all noticed that they worked diversely. They worked diversely. I think this is the most striking aspect of what's recorded for us in this chapter. It's the breadth, it's the diversity of those who are involved in this project. Some are identified according to their family unit. Others are identified by the towns that they came from. Others by the nature of their profession. I just love it that you have goldsmiths and perfumers working on the walls and getting their hands dirty. Some are designated by their trade. You have merchants mentioned. Others are distinguished by their religious function. So you have priests, you have Levites, you have temple servants. Others are local government officials. And finally, one man enlisted the help of his daughters, which was a most unusual thing to do in that culture, but one I think that many a dad would thoroughly commend in the future. So we have a wide age range. There is a, a wide difference in economic status. There is a wide difference in class, in ability, in marital status, in gender. Yet they all came together as one to respond to God's call to serve. And of course, that variety marked the early church. Listen to Paul as he writes to the church at Corinth there in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 26. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. And, and by the way, the influence is for some of you. Are. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. What a, what a whole variety of folks and classes and groups they had in that church at Corinth. 
Or a little bit later in that letter, Paul writes this from uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. He says, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. And you know, this remains one of the glorious realities of what it means to be church today. Different people, from different backgrounds, from different ethnicities, from different educational and economic backgrounds, different classes, different histories, different struggles that we represent. Yet united as one in the Lord Jesus Christ. And how we need each other to serve God. How we need each other to make his name glorious. We need those differences. We need those perspectives. And overall, we need the love of Christ binding us together so that we delight in one another, so that we honor one another even though we're very different. You see, that's what will make the world sit up. That's what will make the world take notice and listen to the gospel. You see, that's what's unique today. Where else do you find a community of peace and harmony and joy? Let me tell you this, if it's not if the Christian church isn't number one on the list, then brothers and sisters, we have failed. You see, what our broken and divided society is, cry, is crying out for is the company of God's people, different in so many ways, on so many levels, yet united as one and loving in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wrote this, Romans 12, verse 4, for just as one of uh, just as each of us has one body with many members and these bodies uh, these members rather do not have all the same function so in Christ we though many form one body and each member belongs to all the others we have different gifts according to the grace given to us and then he goes on love must be sincere hate what is evil cling to what is good be devoted to one another in love honor one another above yourselves that is what we do we work diversely different people but working as one bound together by the love of the lord jesus christ and that is what this world needs they work diversely secondly they worked courageously uh, the chapter four in nehemiah following the descriptions that we have in chapter three outlines some of the threats that these builders experienced there in nehemiah 4 verse 11 we read this our enemies said before they know it or see us we will be right there among them, and we will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over. Oh, real encouragers, aren't they? Have we told you? You're going to get killed? Wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. Brothers and sisters, this is serious stuff. 
we, we probably can't get what it must have been like for these builders to have known that at any time they could have been attacked or they could have been injured or they could even have been killed. You see, there wasn't any police force. There wasn't any established rule of law at the time. It took guts to do what they did as the people of God. It always has and it always will. Like the Israelites, we live in occupied territory. To be a follower of Jesus Christ is to invite opposition. Little wonder Paul counseled the church in Corinth there in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 13. He said, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. And Peter likewise warns believers, 1 Peter 5 verse 8, he said, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. My Christian friends, be courageous, be strong. These are hard days to be living through. And indeed, it seems the opposition is getting stronger. We need courage before an antagonistic government that seems to be driving an agenda largely at odds with our Christian beliefs. We need courage within a society that is so ready to caricature us and exclude us that too easily falls back on the cheap caricature, oh, you're bigots, you're homophobes. <laughs> no, we're not. We love people who, who battle with same-sex attraction. We, we love people who are homosexual. We, we love them. We want to see them knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, just as we want to see everyone coming to a living faith in him. My friends, we need courage to fight up to the caricatures that can so easily exclude us. And maybe most of all, we need courage to speak gospel truth into the lives of friends and family that we have who we fear will be offended. You know, they know us. And, and for us to say to them, look, have you really ever considered the evidence for yourself? Have you thought about where you're going where your eternal destiny is and for us to speak at times into their situations requires a courage which is quite unusual they worked courageously thirdly they work sacrificially many of these builders had left their own families and they had traveled many miles from their own towns to come and repair the walls now they lived in a subsistence culture if you left your land if you left your cattle you were in trouble. But that's what they did. In fact, there are eight different locations around Judah that are listed where people came from those towns to work under Nehemiah's direction. You see, their crops, their animals probably were left to their spouses and children, uh, as actually we can see from the start of chapter 5. And there we see many are approaching starvation levels because of this sacrificial work. So for them to commit themselves to serve God was no small thing. And the same is still true in the Christian life. When you become a follower of Jesus, you give up your own rights. 
you give yourselves completely over to him. Paul describes this like offering ourselves up in the way that the temple sacrifices were offered up. He writes Romans 12 verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And I thank God that in the life of our church, we see men and women giving themselves to serve God and his people. They give generously of their time. They give generously of their money. They forego leisure time to use their gifts for the work of Christ. They serve on teams. They visit the sick. They supply food to nursing mums. They serve as stewards. They serve with children. They clean chairs after a service. My friends, this is church. This is what we do. We serve sacrificially. And I just want to know, are you part of that? Do you understand that? Fourthly, I noticed that they worked unitedly. They worked unitedly. See, Nehemiah, as a good leader, had united them around a common purpose. Nehemiah 2, verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. The commentator Gordon McConville writes this, walls, like flags, can provide identity and solidarity. It is in these terms that we should view the present activity. The Lord was giving his people a badge, a further token alongside the temple that they were his people. So you see, there was this shared purpose in what they uh, were doing. They weren't just clearing rubble. They weren't just having classes in dry stone walling. They were doing God's work for God's glory. Whatever their task, they kept the big picture in mind. And that's actually what Paul has in mind when he writes to the Ephesians, Ephesians 4 verse 11. He said, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that, here's the purpose, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's what it's all about, becoming like Jesus and showing Jesus in his wonderful fullness. Do you know, and you probably do, there are times when it just doesn't feel like that. I dragged myself out of bed with a bad headache, and I remember that I'm on creche duty that day. But then, I remember I'm part of the body. I'm part of something bigger. I'm serving to bless others so that Jesus might be seen and might be known. They worked unitedly. Fifthly, they worked anonymously. They worked anonymously. Now, Ash read loads of names to us very well from chapter 3. But many more times, those names, there are names not listed. For example, you have the men of Tekoa. You have the residents of Zenoa. You have the Levites and so on and so on. People who aren't individually named. Many more than those who are. 
And those folks are not there to make a name for themselves. They're not showboating. They're not sort of taking selfies and then posting it on their Facebook for their glory. Look at me. Look at what I did at church. No, these folks are working away to remove the shame of Jerusalem and to glorify the name of the Lord. And it doesn't matter to them whether their name checked or not. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3 verse 5, he, see, he writes, what after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. My friends, the evangelical world has seen enough damage done by celebrity leaders of late. So let's be content to do the job that God has called us to do, irrespective of whether we're noticed or thanked or not. They worked anonymously. Sixthly, they worked responsibly. They worked responsibly. See, there were probably about 40 sections of the wall that needed repairing, and each section was allotted to one group or maybe to one particular individual. And they were entrusted with that particular responsibility. And everyone else was dependent upon them. You see, what's the point of building a wall? They're building a wall to keep the enemies out. And uh, you've got, say, these 40 sections of walls. And what's the point of you working really hard building the wall if the guy next to you isn't bothering? You know, everyone else has done it, but the guy next to you hasn't. And the enemy, they're just going to stream in through that gap, through that one gap, and attack the workers. My friends, this is how God's people, the church, should operate today. We have different giftings and we have different responsibilities. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 18, he says, But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. You see, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you've been gifted to serve his church in unique ways. Now, please do you get that. If you are committed to this church, if you're a member of this church, and if, if you're not a member of a church, you should be. You should be committed to a local church. If you're part of this church, let me tell you again, we need you. We need the skills and gifts that you've been entrusted with. God has so arranged it for the building of his body. You have something uniquely important. And we want you to exercise responsibility in that particular area. Rather than sitting back and saying, well, it's a large church, I don't need to do it. Brothers and sisters, we desperately need you to do it. In his commentary, T.J. Betts says this, A church's greatness is not measured by its size. It is measured by the percentage of people taking responsibility for what Christ has called them to do in his service. Greatness in the kingdom is marked by service. You know, Charlotte Chapel has one of the greatest histories probably of any church in the UK. What a privileged history. What a line of godly men we've had serving us down. Uh, but brothers and sisters... We don't therefore say, oh, well, that's it, we go, we go to a church that has a great responsibility and it's, it's a large church, it's a little city center location, wonderful city, how good. 
Greatness in the kingdom is marked by service. It's marked by you. It's marked by what you do in the body of Christ for the glory of King Jesus. They worked responsibly. Seventhly, they worked humbly. One of the details that the writer hasn't photoshopped out of this picture comes in Nehemiah 3 verse 5. You probably noted it when Ashley read it. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa. But their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Now, we're not told who those supervisors were, but I do wonder if they used the same system of administration that they'd used earlier when they were building the temple. Because we read this in Ezra 3, verse 8. They appointed Levites... 20 years old and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. A 20-year-old Levite with no dirt under his fingernails, supervising men who had vastly more experience. Can you imagine it? And if that was the situation, you can imagine the nobles of Tekoa feeling somewhat slighted. They were nobles. They could do important work. Probably they could organize the project far better than that guy. It was below their dignity. Especially if the supervisor was younger in age and inferior in class and education. Little wonder Paul had to counsel Timothy as he worked in the church at Ephesus. There in 1 Timothy 4.12, he said, Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. I wonder, are are there any jobs in the life of this church that you would say, I I couldn't do that, that's below me? Is there anything you'd say, no, no, no? (laughs) There are those, you know, the newer members, the younger members. I wonder, are there any church leaders that you're hesitant to follow because you look at them and you say, Oh, those, those guys that we're using, they're pretty young, they're pretty inexperienced, and I have far more experience than they. For a number of years, I served as chaplain at a boys' brigade camp in Devon, uh, a tented, large tented camp uh, just north of Sidmouth. And very wisely, as well as being the chaplain, I was allotted the role of cleaning the latrines. Um, technically, the boys, you can imagine, it, we were known as Latman and Boggin, uh, doing the, the lats. And part of my duties was emptying out the Elson Blue fluids on a daily basis. It wasn't the most pleasant of tasks. And then scrubbing each toilet seat and scrubbing each toilet can separately every day. My friends, it was a good lesson in Christian service for which I'm very grateful. Eighthly, I noticed that they worked collectively. They worked collectively. Although each worker had their own individual responsibility, the writer in Nehemiah keeps using phrases like next to him. In fact, that phrase occurs 14 times. Next to him, next to him. And actually the phrase next to them, plural, occurs five times. See, believers, Christians are part of a team. They're part of the body. This is 
the main thrust, actually, of what Paul is writing to the Ephesian church. He's emphasizing that the grace of Jesus Christ has broken down all the barriers that uh, fallen humanity would erect. And he uses the picture of a building. There in Ephesians 2, 21, he says, In him, that is Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And that sort of imagery is not just confined to Paul. Peter, as well, describes believers as living stones being built into a spiritual house. And you see, it's all the image of different shaped stones being connected with other weird shaped stones so that they fit together. You see, we're not uniform London bricks pressed out of the same mold. We're unique people being built together with other unique people. And the wonder of it is, my rough edges, of which there are many, are called to fit together with your rough edges. And by God's grace, maybe we'll be able to smooth each other out to some degree before we get to glory. But, but that's it. We're, we're different. We're, we're, we've got different personalities, different characters, different backgrounds. And, and God in the scripture is saying, look, as you forgive, as you forbear, you're, you're being fit together. You're next to one another. You serve with each other. I just, you know, I just love that one of the main commands in the scripture is forbear. <laughs> we're different folks. So you forbear. Oh, if something's wrong and you've dealt with it, then you forgive. But where it's just a personality difference, you forbear. It's one of the great things I had to struggle with was people who liked 80s music. Uh, but, you know, in God's great and amazing grace, I was able to forbear and point them to the privilege of 70s music. You see, it's just one of those things. Well, maybe a minor illustration, but you get the point that I'm making. They worked collectively. It's Jonathan Lamb who estimates that in the average church, 90% of the work is done by 10% of the people. Rather than people joining and working, oh no, we'll leave it to the others. I wonder, is that true here? Pray God will be growing in effectiveness as a church, as each of us works collectively for the glory of Jesus. And then my ninth point and the word you're looking for here is, and final point, they worked honorably. They worked honorably. Chapter 5 that we read a section of is a number of those incidents that hasn't been photoshopped. If, if you were trying to present that perfect image of the perfect church, you wouldn't have had chapter 5 in, but they do. And what we notice is there's a division among the community, and it's been caused by some of the more powerful, abusing their financial power and charging their Jewish brothers and sisters heavy interest on the money that's being borrowed. By the way, when it says 1%, that is probably 1% per month. It's a cumulative interest rate, and you can see that would become exorbitant. The, the poorer members of the Jewish community needed to borrow money. They needed to borrow it to eat. They needed to borrow it to pay their taxes. And so great was their poverty as a result that some of them even had to sell their daughters into slavery. And the implication there is into abusive relationships. But this problem was handled honorably. 
Firstly, the need was made known. We're, we're told there was a great outcry and far better to expose such things than cover them up. There were no non-disclosure agreements. Secondly, Nehemiah faced up the guilty officials with what they were doing. He went to them directly and addressed them about their sin. Thirdly, Nehemiah called an official assembly to bring these things into the light and to require reparation as well as an end to the charging of interest to their own community. And fourthly, Nehemiah led by example. He didn't demand what was his by right as the appointed governor of the land. He was mindful of the demands upon the people. And in the whole of church life, we need to be those who act honorably and with compassion. You see, just as the early church got together to talk about some of the theological tensions that were emerging, they did that with a council at Jerusalem. So we must be those who act openly, compassionately, and corporately whenever tensions emerge within church life, as they are bound to do. A second century Greek philosopher observed this about the emerging Christian community. He wrote this about the Christians, second century. If they see a stranger, they bring him under their roof. If they hear that any of their number is imprisoned or oppressed, all of them provide for his needs. And if there is among them a man that is poor and needy, they fast for two or three days that they may supply the needy with the necessary food. So there you see, my friends, that's the Instagram picture. In many ways, it's beautiful, this description that we're getting, but there are some honest defects in the picture. It's makeup free. It doesn't cover over the blemishes. It shows things as they really are. But the great danger, as we conclude, would be for you to imagine that the invitation that I'm giving you is for you to join this remarkable, attractive community of integrity and love. But that is not my prime invitation. That shouldn't be what you're looking at. The very characteristics that make the church of God such an amazing body are characteristics to do with the one who saves and rescues and calls together and unites this incredibly diverse and screwed up company of people. Actually, it's all about Jesus. You see, he's the one who cleanses from sin and failure and shame. He's the one who died sacrificially so that you might be forgiven. He's the one who's made it possible for such a group of people like us to exist for his honor and glory. He's our leader. He's our king. And he invites you to be part of this amazing and precious company of his people who have been saved by his free and lavish grace. He's done it all. He's paid the price. He went to Calvary's cross. So seek him, call out to him, surrender to him, serve him, enjoy him. Let's pray.